Well, my name is Ron Cool, and I'm one of the pastors here as well, and I'd like to join the others in welcoming you here this morning, and uh, just let you know one thing about me um, as we start, is that I'm uh, the fifth boy, and I've got one younger sister, but I've got four older brothers. I've got four older brothers, and the reason I mention that is that it makes me an expert on being a little brother. And uh, while I haven't done a lot of research on this, I want to suggest this morning that for little brothers and sisters, for hundreds of years, and you can check out if this happened in your family, but for hundreds of years, there has been a consistent threat made by little brothers and sisters against older brothers and sisters, and the threat goes like this. You just wait. You just wait, because mom and dad are coming home. It was kind of our only play, right? When the older brothers would pound on us, when, when the bigger brothers would do something, we would just say, come on, you just wait. You just wait. I'm going to tell when they come home. I'm going to tell them what you did. When they come home, I'm going to tell them that your girlfriend came over. When they say you get, I'm going to tell them that you hit me. I'm going to tell them this, and you are going to be in big trouble because when mom and dad came home, that was the moment of justice, right? When mom and dad came home, that was the, the moment when everything would be set right. When finally I would be vindicated. When finally I would be taken care of. It was a wonderful thing to know that mom and dad were coming home. And when they came home, I was going to turn them in. Mom and Dad were going to take care of the weak and the small and their favorite little child, me. And they were going to punish those who were evil and wrong and crooked. That would be my older brothers, right? I mean, it's just, that's a threat. I got to believe it's, it's hundreds, if not thousands of years old. Maybe from the very beginning of families, little brothers and little sisters have been saying, you just wait, Mom and Dad are coming home. But it's not just little brothers and sisters who say that. I want to suggest this morning that in some ways, if you can kind of get into that feeling of saying, you know, you just wait, you just wait, you you, you get a sense of of where Israel was. The people of Israel, I think, had that same sense of of using that threat against others, those Romans who who had taken over their country. Those sinners in the country who seemed to be making a lot of money and who seemed to be blessed by God, they, they kept saying, you know, you just wait because God is coming. The, the, the Old Testament talks about this, and it was really prevalent at the time when Jesus was born. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming. <laughs> and then the, the people of Israel, the pastors, the really religious folks, were just like so excited. <laughs> just like I was for mom and dad to come home. They were like, God is going to come, and when he comes, you are going to be in big trouble. Because I'm telling them, you did bad stuff. <laughs> I'm telling them that you did naughty stuff. I'm telling him when he comes, he is going to find out what you did, and he is going to set things right, and justice will be ours. And the people of Israel were really excited about this, right? They were so excited that God was going to come because what was God going to do? Straighten everything out. (laughs) And that meant punishing those who had hurt them. That meant punishing those sinners among them, those prostitutes, those people who messed around with sex, those other kind of perverts and so on. They said, oh, we can't wait. Watch out because God is coming. And then along comes John the Baptist. (laughs) Along comes John the Baptist All four Gospels, all four stories of Jesus tell us about this. Before Jesus comes John the Baptist. And John says, on the one hand, you're right. God is coming. In fact, John says, God is coming now. God is coming soon. Dad's car, God's car is pulling in the driveway. And he's walking up the driveway, okay? He's coming. He is on his way here. But then John says words that ought to just stop us in our tracks. Because he says, it's not going to happen the way you think it's going to happen. Sometimes an amazing thing happened. When mom and dad got home, they didn't punish the evil ones. They confronted me. And that's what John wants to talk to us about. That the day of the Lord, when it comes, is not always just roses and light. It's not always just brightness. It's not always just joy for us. But, but when God comes, he comes first of all to us. 
And it's not just those crooked people out there, but it's the crooked people in here. Listen once again to Matthew. Matthew 3, 1 to 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and Jordan, and, and saying, or the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair. You know, Elijah was hairy. Elijah is John. John is Elijah. He had a leather leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They, They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, the Bible study leaders and pastors, coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think that you can say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. (laughs) We're Jews. I I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So far the reading of God's word. We are right now 17 days away from Christmas. Some of you are probably uh, already done with your preparations. The lights are up, the tree is up, the presents are bought, everything is wrapped. Uh, some of you probably aren't. But, but for many of us, as Kevin said at the very beginning here, we, we, we use this time. It's a time of anticipation. It's a time of preparation. And, and my guess is uh, that, that we've together spent hundreds, if not thousands of hours already getting ready for Christmas. It's only 17 days away, and we're excited about it, and, 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 and that's good. But the question we need to ask ourselves this morning is kind of the question John confronted the people of Jesus' day with is, are we really ready for it? You know, I, I, I think it's just interesting, and, and, and I challenge myself on this, okay? I talk to myself on this one because, you know, I, we can spend so much time getting our houses ready. And the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is, how are we doing getting our hearts ready to recognize that Jesus is coming? to recognize that God's own Son is coming to be with us. And that's good news, but it's also really scary news. So I want to say this morning that if we want to be ready, we need to hear John preach. We're starting a little four-part series this morning, calling it Anticipation, right? It's that this time of Advent, this time of anticipation. We're going to have four parts to it, preparing, discovering, trusting, and then receiving on Christmas Eve, all right? So this morning we start by talking about preparing about preparing our hearts, and we do this by listening to John the Baptist. And what I want to suggest this morning is that there are kind of three things that we need to learn from John, three things that we need to hear this morning to get us on the road of preparation, to get us ready to to, to receive and to accept and to trust the one who comes to give us life. All right, so three things. The first one is this, and it's kind of a general one, but but, but I, I think it's where it all starts. When the king is coming, John wants us to know, smart people prepare. When the king is coming, smart people prepare prepare. They get ready. Matthew again, 3, 1 to 3. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The king is coming. God is coming. The kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare. 
prepare the way of the Lord. John says to us, when the king is coming, smart people prepare. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the background of this. You, You see, John wasn't the first one to make this kind of a statement. Okay, John wasn't the first one to bring this kind of a message. When John was doing this, the people of Jesus' day and in the whole world at that time would have recognized that this was a pattern. This was something that had been going on for hundreds of years. What I want to suggest is that, is that we need to understand that for hundreds of years, the message would go out that the king or the emperor or whoever it was who was in charge, but the king or the emperor is coming, get ready. Isaiah the prophet talked about that, right? Matthew quotes Isaiah. So back in the days of Isaiah, 600 years earlier or so, back in the days of Isaiah, there was always this, this, this sense of saying, you know, when the king comes, you've got to prepare. Make straight paths for him. Get everything ready. And so whether it was Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon or Alexander the Great of the Greeks or whether it was uh, Caesar Augustus, when you knew that the emperor, when you knew that the king was coming, you got ready. And these messages would go out often years in advance. Last spring, I went to uh, Jordan with a group of folks. And the first place we stopped at in Jordan, we stayed in Amman overnight. And then we went to a city called Jerash. Jerash. And, and this is what we saw first. This is the city gate for Jerash. And it is massive. Just to give you an idea, here's another picture. Those are people, okay? That's how large this thing is. Those are people there over to the right. You can see them in the doorway. I mean, again, that's how this thing was huge. It was monstrous. And and from this shot, you see, again, really, this thing was just elaborately put together, okay? The reason this thing was built, the reason this thing was built, because in about the year 125 AD, so about 120 years after Jesus, 90 years maybe after Jesus died. So after Jesus died, but at that same time sort of thing, the word went out that Emperor Hadrian Emperor Hadrian is on the move. Hadrian loved to travel. He went from Rome. He made it all the way to Great Britain. I didn't know that till this week. But he made it all the way up to Great Britain. And then he wanted to make a trip down to Egypt. And, and so in maybe 125 AD or so, the word went out. And then they send a messenger out saying, Hadrian's going to travel. He's going to go down to Egypt. But he's also going to stop here in Jerash. You got maybe two, three years. Get ready. And they went to work, and they started to build this, and they, they cleaned up all the roads, and they, and they built this elaborate, elaborate gate. It, it's fascinating. The columns, uh, this, this doesn't mean necessarily much to us, but, but for example, they took the time to make sure that the top of the columns were exactly the same on the bottom of the columns because they didn't want Hadrian to have to look up to see the top. They could just tell him, no, you can keep your eyes down on us. If you look down, it's the same as the columns on the top because, Hadrian, you are the emperor You are the one who saves us. You are the one who gives us food. You are the one who takes care of us. You are the one who provides security. And they spent just all sorts of time getting ready. That's what John is talking about, okay? You know, the message would go out, again, whether it was Hadrian or Augustus or whoever it was, you know, the king is coming. Get yourself ready. And these communities would spend years, years getting themselves ready. And only a fool would say, it's good enough, (laughs) When Hadrian was coming, you never just said, eh, good enough for who it's for. No, you did everything you possibly could. These cities would go into deep debt. They would just spend every amount of time they had. It had to be absolutely perfect. And that's what John says to us. You know, the city of Jerash was smart enough (laughs) to spend three years getting everything in place before Hadrian came. And now John wants to say to us, the, the, the true king is coming. God himself, the kingdom of heaven, has come near. Are you ready? Now I want you to notice something. It's really fascinating, I think. What John is doing is John is telling the people of Israel that they need to get ready. As I said at the beginning, the people of Israel kind of said, we are ready. 
We're the children of Abraham. I'm the youngest child. I'm the chosen one. I am loved. And so we're ready. We don't need to get ready. It's the older brothers who need to get ready. It's the Romans who need to get ready. It's the sinners who need to get ready. It's all of them who need to get ready. But who does John come to? John comes to Israel. John comes to the church. John comes to those of us who can feel comfortable about saying, oh, I'm ready for Christmas. I'm ready for Jesus to come because I know he loves me and everything is all honky-dory. And John says, just a minute, friend. Not so fast, my friend. You know, it's interesting. John baptized. Now, John was not the first one to baptize. Jewish people had been baptizing others, but usually baptism was only for those Gentiles who were becoming Jews. Those were the ones who needed to get washed, okay? It was when those outsiders came in. We need to wash them. But again, look at it. John says, no. No. It's not those Gentiles who need to get washed. It's you who needs to get washed. It's you who needs to get ready. It's not just those hookers. It's not just those drug addicts. It's not just those people out there. But John says to us, no, each and every one of us needs to get washed. 9 and 10. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I was baptized as a baby. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. John is saying to us, you all need to get washed. And you are not as ready as you think you are. And I think we need to just listen to John preach this morning. I think what we need to do is just listen to John preach to the Pharisees and to the Sadducees and to the Rons and the Daniels and to each and every one of us who find it so easy to say we're ready because we know Jesus. We're ready because we just love Jesus. We're ready because we are chosen. John wants to say, you're not as ready as you think you are because the king is coming. And yeah, he's good, but he's not safe. And yeah, he loves you, but he's holy. And, and he can't put up with anything crooked. And, and I say this to say, friends, we've got 17 days yet, okay? We, we, we've got 17 days. And I want to encourage you and beg you to spend some of that time, smart people, prepare. Carve out some time. Carve out some time to do some honest-to-God work on your heart. Carve out some time to just be with God and, and to do some examination. I know we're all busy. I, I know it is crazy busy at this time of the year. But I want to tell you, only a fool would say, well, you know, my heart is close enough. And that's why the church has done this thing called Advent. This time of anticipation. This time of saying, slow down. I, I don't know if Kevin did it intentionally. Uh, he, he's going to listen probably to the second service. But, but I'll tell you, I don't know about you, but I'll tell you at the second, what was it? O come, O come, Emmanuel. No, the come thou long expected Jesus. I wanted to say, come on, somebody, can we sing this a little faster? Didn't you feel that? Come on. I've got to preach. i got a lot to say, Kevin. Sing it faster. <laughs> come thou long. And I thought, Lord, this is what I need. I need to stop. I need to prepare. Hard to do that these days because we like to run. So we've got places to be, places to go, people to see. I mean, all this stuff. John calls us to just prepare, to stop. Second thing, John calls us to go to the desert to prepare. 
Interesting that he does that. Matthew 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling again in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. John is out in the wilderness. He was not in a nice area. He was in the desert. It was not easy to get to him, and it was not fun being there. And, and I just again think, why? John, you could have drawn a much larger crowd had you been this, done this at En Gedi. There's waterfalls and where it's beautiful. John, you could have built a little chapel on the edge of the Sea of Galilee, huh? That's where we build churches. That's where we build spiritual retreats. We build them on Lake Michigan. We build them in gorgeous places. We build them in the middle of the woods. But sometimes we need to challenge ourselves. Okay, I'm not saying all those are bad. I love, and and, and that's the place we meet God as well. But, But the fact of the matter is, God often meets his people in the desert. When we look at the Bible, where where does God meet his people? More often than not, I think most of the time, God tends to meet us in the desert. After Egypt, we talked about this a few weeks ago with our beginning series. But after Egypt, where do the people of Israel go? For 40 years, they're in the desert, right? And, And it's because there they learn who God is. It's in the desert without those other distractions that they can see that what they really need is God in the desert where only God can take care of them that they discover that God is enough. The prophets, again, I'm not doing a lot with it, but Elijah and John the Baptist, Elijah was out in the desert. The prophets, they were out there in these lonely places, in these deserted places, in these wilderness places. Jesus himself, when he needed renewal, he he didn't go to the Sea of Galilee and take a boat ride as often as he went to a solitary, and that means wilderness place to play, to pray to pray rather. Jesus would go into the desert. God often meets his people in the desert. And, and, and I think the reason for that is we most often clearly learn that, that God is what we need when God is all we have, right? The fact is I get so easily distracted by shiny objects. And if there is ever a time in our lives when there are a lot of shiny objects, it's December, right? It is so difficult. There is so much noise. There are so many lights. And yet, where does God meet us? He often meets us in the desert. And, and so really, I want to challenge you this morning to not only carve out some time, to spend some time in the desert. If you want to fly me to Arizona, I'll go with you. But no, I don't, yeah, obviously I don't mean literally in the desert here. Um, Michigan can look enough like the desert at times. But to spend some time in the, in the desert, I want to suggest that, that you turn off the lights and the Christmas music. Maybe you find a room in your house that you have not decorated. If you don't have one, take decorations out of one. Honestly, put a chair in it and one candle. Create your own little desert place. Get away from the music. The fact is you can't get away from the music in your car often. You can't get away from the music in the mall. You can't get away from the music in the grocery store. You can't get away from the music at work. You can't get away from it. But I want to suggest that the key of preparation is not listening to more Christmas music. Sometimes part of what we need to do is listen to none. Part of what we need to do is just just kind of say, God, I, I just need to stop. And, and I need to spend some time in the desert. And I need to be in a room by myself. I'd suggest you do things like read Psalm 90. I've got a little bit of this I want to read for you. Psalm 90. <laughs> read fun passages like this. God, you turn men back to dust, saying, return to dust, O sons of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. They, we, are like the new grass of the morning. Though in the morning it springs up new, by evening it is dry and withered. That's life. (laughs) That's the truth. 
Psalm 102. For my days vanish like smoke. My bones burn like glowing embers. My heart is blighted and withered like grass. I forget to eat my food. Because of my loud groaning, I am reduced to skin and bones. I am like a desert owl, like an owl among the ruins. These are Christian preparation psalms for Advent. These are the, I, I think, what John calls us to do is to get into the desert, to go into that place where we basically think about and, and how nothing in this world satisfies. In, in a sense, I, I really do believe that the key to preparation it, it, for Advent, for the coming of Christ, for the Christmas day, is, is in a sense a touch of depression. And, and I don't mean that in the clinical sense because I know that's so, but, but there is something about saying, God, I just, it's when we're empty, it's when we're in the desert that we say, God, I need you. More than anything else, God, I need you. When I have all of my shiny objects around me, I forget God. So turn off the music, turn off the lights, turn off all your iPods, turn off all your iPads, turn off your phones, and just sit and recognize that apart from God, there is no good thing in this world, all right? John calls us to go to the desert to prepare. And and then third, in the desert, John calls us to do one thing, and that is repent. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent. This is John's message. At the heart of it is repent. John calls us to repent. And and we need to understand something here, okay? Please follow me on this because I think this pushes us to, to the right place to get us ready. For John to repent is to completely turn around our lives. You know, I think so often what I do is I turn repentance into an emotion that I feel. Repentance is just feeling really, really sorry for my sin. And so what it's all about is I need to get a place where I feel really, really sorry for my sin, where I feel really, really bad about myself, and it's all about emotion. But that's not what it was for John. I I think in some ways John would say, I don't care about your emotions. Show it to me in your life. For John, to repent was was to turn our lives around, to, to start doing the right stuff, to stop sinning, to stop making excuses, and to start loving, to start giving our stuff away, to start doing what God called us to do, Matthew 3, 7, and 8. But when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, again, the Bible study leaders, the pastors coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. John's message is produce fruit. Luke tells us some of that fruit. He says, give away your food, give away your clothes. He says, you know, he says feed the hungry. He says, stop cheating, stop lying, stop gossiping. And John says, that's how you get ready. You've got to straighten your life out. You've got to turn your life around. And we need to hear that this morning. We need to hear that that the only way for us to get ready for Jesus, the only way for us to get ready for Christmas is to become new people. And if we don't, John says we're dead. If we don't, listen to this. This is John's sermon. If we don't, we're dead. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit, it's not every tree that just doesn't feel bad. No, every pretty tree that does not change, does not produce good fruit, will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 12, his, that's Jesus' winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. If we don't do this, John tells us that we're dead. 
We don't think about that, do we? You're only ready for Christmas when you are perfect. You are only ready for Christmas when your life is completely made new. Three things I want to say about this. The first is this. John is exactly right. This is the truth. The only way to be ready is to change our lives. And I want you to chew on that enough today and in this coming week and to push yourself on that until you get to a certain place. And that is when you realize we can't do that. That we are dead. See, that's why John comes first. That's why John's message is so important to us. Because what John says is there's only one way to get ready, and that's to be perfect. And and until we try, until we give ourselves, until we say, I am not going to sin. I am not going to do that wrong thing. I'm not going to think that wrong thought. I am going to learn to love. I am going to give. I'm going to serve. I'm going to do everything right. Until we realize that we cannot do that. We are not ready for Christmas. But the good news is, when we try and we find out we're dead, and this is the heart of what I want to say to you this morning, dead is right where we need to be. Dead is right where we need to be. See, what John does is John comes to us with the law. John comes to us with the law and says, the only way for you to be ready for Jesus is to be perfect. And part of what we need to do is to get that place where we say, I can't. Because John didn't understand completely what Jesus was going to do. We need to understand that John is called the last of the Old Testament prophets. And I always thought that was odd because he's in the New Testament. But, but the reason I think for that is because John is still saying, you've got to change. And we need John to push us to this place where we finally say, I'm dead. Because you know what Jesus specializes in? Raising the dead. Jesus specializes in raising the dead. Through Jesus, God gives us new life. And, and, and you know, the people that Jesus had the biggest problem with was were those who didn't know they were dead. Were those who thought that it was good enough. Were those who thought they were ready. So, so that's why I say at the heart of our preparation this morning, the heart of our preparation this morning is pushing ourselves, getting alone, and just coming to the place where we say, God, I don't get it. I can't get it. I am dead. Because if I'm dead, Jesus is good. You're right where I need you to be. And he starts to lift me up. And that brings us to the table, huh? I'm going to move this out of the way. Because this is a table for people who know they're dead. This is a table, a meal for those who know that they can't do it. Who know that it's only by God's grace. The fact is, if you're visiting with us, you want to know if you can come here. We say the first thing you got to know is that you don't deserve it. The first thing you got to know is that you're dead. You got to know that you can't do it. But then we say, do you know that you've put your trust in Jesus for him to raise you to new life? And, and then not on your own, but by the power of Jesus, by the power of this baby who came, by the power of him, do we seek now to follow him? This is a meal for dead people. This is a meal for those who need to get raised by Jesus Christ. And, and, and you will be ready for Christmas when you know that you are dead. So I want to encourage you. Take the time. Go to the desert. And, and just realize that you're dead. And let Jesus bring you new life.
Let Jesus, the little baby born in Bethlehem, come who died for us so that we could be raised. Let's pray together. Father, uh, it's so hard for us to admit that we're dead. Like those Pharisees and others, those people who thought they were so good, the righteous ones. Father, we kind of feel like we're ready for you because we're good. Father, remind us that without you, we're dead. Father, it's hard to, to get to a desert. I pray that you'll find us some desert places so that we can realize how much we need Jesus, so that you can create that hunger in us, so that we join the prophets in saying, come thou long expected Jesus, because we are dead on our own. We don't need you to come to beat up everybody else, Jesus. We need you to come and save us. We need you to come and raise us from the dead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.